2: School of Humans. The 1948 World Series signaled a new era for Major League Baseball. The Boston Braves faced off against the Cleveland Indians in the first championship to be nationally televised. And in Game 5, Leroy Satchel Page took the mound, the first ever player from the Negro Leagues to pitch in a World Series. Here's the moment he walked onto the field.
0: And here's the announcement about the appearance of Satchel Paige. Listen.
2: The Hall of Famer remains one of baseball's most celebrated pitchers. Paige's pitching remained bold, versatile, and unpredictable as he was pitching for the Indians in that historic game some 74 years ago. In the 1948 game, his fast pitching was on full display.
0: Here's the pitch. Swung on, and missed strike two. As old Satch poured a fast one in
2: there. Each man who went up to bat against him dreaded it. And he had stamina. He was 18 when he began playing baseball professionally, and didn't hang up his hat until he was almost 60. Page started in the Negro National Leagues in the mid-1920s, and eventually became the first black pitcher to play in the American League. All the best players of the time said Page was the greatest. Joe DiMaggio called him the best I've ever faced and the fastest. Plus, the man had more personality than the rest of the league combined. Here he is in 1958 talking to a reporter in Miami. While he was playing, it became a running joke that Satchel would never disclose his age. —
3: truth, I don't think it but a very few people in the United States know my age or where I come from, even, because I've been playing ever since I was a kid. I never had a job. But still, they say I'm 100 years old, and everybody I meet, they say they played ball with me. Some of them's 100, some of them's 85 and 90. <laughs> That's what you have
2: to have. — Page died in 1982. He's buried in Kansas City, Missouri, home of his beloved Negro League monarchs. But Page's roots were further south. He grew up in a poor family, the sixth of twelve children, in a segregated neighborhood called Down the Bay in Mobile, Alabama.
0: Satchel at least has a home in Kansas City. He visits down to Mobile. As Satch said one time, said I just live where
4: I pitch.
2: Both Satchel Page's birthplace and resting place claim him. Mobile and Kansas City have streets, schools, and scholarships in his name. But most people don't know that there was a third place that changed Satchel Page's life. In fact, if it wasn't for one woman, Cornelia Bowen of Tuskegee, Alabama, the great Satchel Page might never have been.
3: Because he was on a, a trail to, he's going to either get, end up being lynched or dead.
2: This is Donald Spivey, an American historian and distinguished professor at University of Miami. He wrote the book, If You Were Only White, The Life of Leroy Satchel Page.
3: He was a troubled youth. In the parlance of Black people, he was hard-headed. He was just a difficult, difficult child. And back then, and particularly in the South, they would tell you, go and fetch me a switch. He heard that so often that that could have been his other nickname. Rather than Satchel, it could have been, go and fetch me a switch.
2: That hard-headedness got young Satchel into trouble outside of the home, too. By 12, he was known in his neighborhood for stealing. And it's rumored that his nickname, Satchel, came from an incident where he was caught stealing a bag. And he skipped school. Even back then, though, Satchel could throw, throw hard. He'd hunt with just a pile of rocks. In Mobile, train tracks separated down the bay from the nearby white neighborhood. And sometimes young white boys and black boys would meet along the tracks to battle.
3: They had ongoing rock battles with the Oakdale School, which was a, a, a white school across the railroad tracks and white students threw rocks at them uh, and they threw rocks back uh, at them. And this became the racial rock wars.
2: One battle got out of hand.
3: Page trying to hold off this, this forward coming mob of, of white started throwing rocks with bad intentions. And you know, with his ability to throw, he was hitting people in the head. And he's lucky he didn't knock somebody's eye out. And the white youngsters luckily didn't complain to their parents about it. The community could have been wiped out.
2: Down the Bay might have been spared, but Satchel's prowess with rocks and his reputation for sticky fingers soon caught the attention of Mobile's police chief, Frank Crenshaw, a man whose peacekeeping philosophy included the belief that all Black boys between 7 and 16 should be sent to a detention facility for any minor crime. He said as much in a letter he wrote to the founder of Tuskegee University, Booker T. Washington, about, quote-unquote, the juvenile delinquents. Delinquents like Satchel Paige, who on July 24, 1918, at the age of 12, was sent to the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers in Mount Megs, Alabama. He would be there for six years or until his 18th birthday, whichever came first.
3: He thinks it's the worst day of his life, that he's being sentenced to school, he's being sentenced to prison, so he doesn't realize that, in fact, this saved his life.
2: What we know now is that the school— later known as the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, became a place where thousands of Alabama's Black boys and girls were subjected to abuse and torture in the name of rehabilitation and reform. But at its inception, the school was something else entirely, a safe haven for Black children who would have otherwise been thrown into adult prison. I'm Josie Duffy Rice, and this is Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. Episode 3, Cornelia's Dream. Cornelia Bowen was the founder of Mount Megs. And in order to understand what Mount Megs became, you have to understand how it started. Cornelia's vision. And really, you have to understand this strange, remarkable life she lived. A life that was only possible during that one narrow sliver of history. As slavery ended and the Reconstruction era began. Of myself
4: and the work I have done, there's not a great deal to say I was born at Tuskegee, Alabama. My mother lived the greater part of her life at this place as the slave of Colonel William Bowen. The birthplace of my mother was Baltimore, Maryland. She was taught to read by her master's daughter in Baltimore and was never forbidden to read by those who owned her in
2: Alabama. That's Alabama-born art historian and professor Alvia Wardlaw. You'll hear her reading Cornelia's words throughout this episode. Cornelia was born on the Bowen Plantation in Macon County, Alabama, just east of Montgomery. It's hard to know exactly when. Some say she was born in 1858. Others think that it was more like 1864. And after going down a rabbit hole of census records, I'm inclined to agree. This, of course, is one of the casualties of being Black during slavery and in the years after. Records of your life were sparse and inconsistent. We don't know anything about Cornelia's father. Some think he must have been a slave owner, but there is really no way for us to know. But what we do know is that her mother, Sophia, was enslaved. Sophia worked as a seamstress in the home of her white slave owner. And later, Cornelia recalled that her mother wasn't even allowed to talk to the people working in the fields. Another thing about Sophia, she could read. And later, when her three daughters were young, she taught them to read, too. On Sundays, with my sisters gathered
4: about her knees, we would sit for hours listening as Mother would read church hymns. These days were days of freedom, as I do not remember and know nothing of those of slavery. My mother always refrained from telling her children frightful stories of the awful sufferings
2: of the slave days." So Cornelia was the child of an enslaved woman, and her life turned out drastically different than her mother's. In 1881, the state appropriated $2,000 to start a Black college in Macon County. A white state senator, former Confederate, had pushed for the appropriation himself, hoping it would get him Black votes. This was during the post-Reconstruction period, where Black people had some voting rights before they were taken away again. And this was more evidence of what the right to vote meant. At least some political power, opportunity, and sometimes education. Booker T. Washington himself was the person tasked with building this new college in Macon County. He ended up purchasing the Bowen Plantation where Cornelia was born, the same plantation where her mother was enslaved. On it, he built the Institute, now known as Tuskegee University, an historically Black university that is renowned to this day. And in 1885, Cornelia graduated with honors in Tuskegee's first graduating class. To my class that graduated in 1885,
4: the first one to graduate, we proudly boast. Three Peabody medals were awarded for excellence in scholarship And I was
2: awarded one of the medals. Think for a second about how remarkable this is. Here was a Black woman getting a college diploma on the very same land her own mother had been a slave. I don't know exactly what shaped Cornelia's outlook on the world, of course. We missed each other by about a hundred years. But in her records, you can see the three main influences that shaped her politics and how she saw the world. The first was her education, and the second was her mentor, Booker T. Washington. Mr. Washington
4: himself took charge of our classes, and I have always been very proud that I can say that he was my teacher. If I have been of any service to my people, I owe it all to Mr. Washington, who impressed upon me Those lessons which led me to want to spend
2: myself in the helping of my people. Here's Booker T. in 1908, reading an excerpt of a speech he gave in 1895. It was his most famous speech called the Atlanta Compromise, and this is the only known audio recording of his voice.
0: It is not strange that in the first years of our new life, we began at the top instead of the bottom.
2: It's hard to hear him, I know, not great sound quality in the early 1900s. But what he's basically saying is that Black people were too focused on political power and intellectual pursuits and not focused enough on earning money or learning a trade. Or, in his words, that the political convention or stump speaking had more attractions than starting a dairy farm or truck garden. Note that he's literally giving a speech when he says that. It's a confusing thing to say when he only got his university because the local state senator needed Black votes. But Booker T. always had a, shall we say, controversial perspective on how Black people should function in a post-slavery America, where racism ran rampant and equality remained a pipe dream. He was essentially the father of respectability politics. He spent a lot of time focused on what Black people were doing wrong. He liked to tell Black people to work harder, to get a hobby, and this perspective was the foundation on which Booker T.'s philosophy of industrial education was built. Part of the theory behind industrial education was respectability and an attempt to make Black people indispensable. People like Cornelia and Booker T. encouraged Black people to focus on trade work, and basically what that meant was that even though Black folks had been freed from the practice of slavery. They should still arm themselves with similar skills that they practiced on the plantation. Cornelia was an early and avid supporter of Booker T. Washington's philosophy of industrial education. So in 1888, when Washington himself requested that Cornelia move to Waugh to teach, she did it. Waugh, W-A-U-G-H, was this poor Black community about 15 miles outside of Montgomery, It was there that Cornelia founded her first school, the Colored Institute, almost 20 years before she founded Mount Megs. Not
4: one person in the whole community owned a foot of land, and heavy crop mortgages were the burden of every farmer. It became evident at once that pioneer work was very much needed. Homes were neglected, And the sacredness of family life was unknown to most of the people.
2: While there, Cornelia began getting more involved with local women's clubs, the third thing that shaped her worldview. Cornelia never married, had no kids, which was unusual for the time. But she had a very, very full social life. She was part of seemingly endless organizations and in leadership positions of many of them. Most notably, she became president of the Alabama Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, an exclusive organization for black women focused on service.
6: Their slogan was lifting as we climb, but this idea that as you climb a ladder, even if you're at the top of the ladder, those folk who are at the bottom are still yours. They're still connected to you.
2: That's Dr. Denise Davis-May, chair and professor of social work at Alabama State University, and an expert on these women's clubs.
6: The women of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs were typically second- and third-generation middle-class women, even in the 1890s. I think when we talk about the 1890s and we talk about black women, particularly in the South, we envision sharecropping. We envision women who are just out of enslavement and have a very particular image of what that might be. These women were educated. They attended some of the established, uh, at the time not historically Black colleges, but now historically Black colleges and universities. They were married to professionals. In some of their rights, they were professional educators.
2: In theory, the Colored Institute was a school, but ultimately it was more than that. At just 23, Cornelia was sent to WA to essentially fix the people there. Their homes, their families, their perspectives, their lives. And she took this role very seriously. She went from house to house each week to make sure that they were clean. She inspected children in the morning to make sure that they had neat hair and clean fingernails. She dealt with family disputes. She pushed the men to work and the women to stay home. I am pleased with the progress the people have made.
4: Many now own their own homes, and eight and ten persons are no longer content to sleep in one-room log cabins. I know what I'm saying when I state that sacred family ties are respected and appreciated as never before in this immediate region.
2: Years later in a newspaper interview, she stated proudly that a large part of her success could be attributed to one particular tactic—shaming people.
6: There were some class-based issues in terms of how they serve the community.
2: That is definitely correct. As a Black woman in Alabama, Cornelia was among the most disadvantaged demographic in the country. The bottom of the barrel. And yet, among Black women, there were differences. Some had more power than others. And at the top of that list was Cornelia. Her work at the Colored Institute turned her into somewhat of a celebrity. There are all these articles from the late 1800s of her traveling the country, giving speeches and raising money, and hobnobbing with people whose names we know today. Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells. There she is in 1896, being named president of the National Federation of Afro-American Women. In 1904, at the World's Fair, Traveling the country to speak in Boston and Chicago and New York, giving speeches to packed rooms. She was the subject of a long, fawning profile in the Washington Post in 1905, framed as the good, classy Negro woman helping the poor ones. The Montgomery Advertiser described her as the Booker Washington among colored women. Cornelia was complicated. On one hand, she was responsible for so much good. At the Colored Institute and later at Mount Megs, Cornelia provided a level of attention, assistance, and opportunity to so many Black people, one they never could have afforded otherwise. She really did care about the community. And still, she looked down on them. Like her mentor, Booker T., Cornelia seemed to believe that true social and legal equality was in arm's reach of Black people. All we had to do was be a little better, a little more useful, make a little more money, work a little harder, and white people might just come around. In one speech, Cornelia told the audience,
4: We cannot be respected till we learn to do something. White
2: men will not respect you. I would not respect you myself. And unsurprisingly, Cornelia's willingness to be critical of black people gained the admiration of more than a few white ones. After all, Cornelia had the tendency to attribute the Black community's struggles to their own failings rather than persistent systemic injustice and centuries of slavery that had ended just a few years prior. A child of a slave basically preaching about bootstraps. The question is, did Cornelia really believe the stuff that she was saying publicly? I'm inclined to believe that she did, but it's also possible she was playing politics, saying the things that white people wanted to hear. The only way she could get what she wanted from the people who were really in power.
6: So these women understood the necessity to work in community with the women who had the ear of people who were in charge, right? That's not very different than... Today, you need to be able to establish relationships with the folks who are sitting at the dinner table with the man who signs the probate for your land.
2: Cornelia has been running the Colored Institute for more than 10 years when she gets interested in a new project. She and her club want to help build a juvenile reformatory. When I was researching Cornelia, there was one thing that kept nagging at me. Here she was, president of her women's club principal of a growing school, adored by the community, and often outspokenly critical of Black youth. So why suddenly start this school for quote-unquote juvenile delinquents? Then I stumbled upon a document in old files from the 1960s, and it began to answer this question. At the turn of the 20th century, four boys are arrested in Birmingham, accused of breaking and entering. One of them is just 11 years old. Now, had they been white, they would have gone to the reformatory for white boys, which had been created after a white women's club championed the project. But these four boys were Black, which meant that there was no place for them to go except adult prison. This is what inspires Cornelius Club to build a juvenile reformatory for Black children
3: in the state of Alabama, Black youngsters as early as age 10, 10 years old, had been sentenced to male prisons. And the women concluded that if they were going to save an endangered population, which was the young Black males, they needed to open a reformatory where young Black males could be sentenced.
2: By the early 1900s, reform schools were part of a growing movement across the United States and the world, as progressives began to talk about the concept of children as a class of people in their own right. That's significant, because before the 20th century, there weren't many formal legal distinctions between adults and minors, and that persisted for black kids.
5: Black children, in particular, were typically treated just like adults. They were sentenced just like adults. They were put in the same prisons with adults. And they were executed just like adults.
2: That's Barry Feld, professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota Law School.
5: As the United States at the end of the 19th century was switching, shifting from a primarily agricultural economy to a more industrial economy. And so the progressive reformers had adopted a new conception of childhood as vulnerable and innocent.
2: Well, at least some children were seen as vulnerable and innocent, but not black kids, whose studies show society has always perceived as older and more adult than they are. So Cornelia School was meant to fill a long-overlooked void in the care of Black Alabamian children. She gave a statement to the local paper saying that she and the members of the women's clubs were building a school for so-called juvenile delinquents, or, as she put it, the unfortunate and
4: floating young element of our race, who from lack of good home training find their way to jail, penitentiaries, and convict mines. It is conceded that children thrown among hardened criminals are made worse in character by unwholesome environments and in the
2: end prove themselves criminals rather than useful citizens. Black reformatories weren't necessarily popular, but they had support across a wide spectrum. In 1907, my local paper, the Atlanta Constitution, supported a reformatory for black kids in the most racist way possible. The necessity for such a specific treatment is even more powerfully applicable to the Negro than to the white race. The Negro youth is essentially racially of a roving, irresponsible, impulsive, susceptible temperament. The race itself is but half-child. Cornelia and the club ladies raised $2,000 on their own to build their own school. And when they couldn't get anyone to give them land, Cornelia already had a solution. She owned 400 acres outside of Montgomery, a feat for any Black person, let alone a Black woman. And she agreed to sell 20 acres to the club for less money than she paid for it. On August 18, 1907, the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Boys opened. But there wasn't much press about it, at least that I could find except in a magazine called The Colored American. In an article called Child Saving in Alabama, the magazine praised the school. And this article has a picture of the school. It's the only one we have from that era. In it, you can see about 20 black boys standing stoically in two rows, their faces shadowed by the sun. Behind them is a white house, the same white building I saw when I went to Mount Megs. And in front of them, is a field of cotton. The following year, Cornelia gave a proud assessment at a conference at Tuskegee. The school has 22
4: boys and no bolts or bars. The boys work in the
2: garden. Cornelia saw the school as a place that gives black children a chance at opportunity, a much better and even life-saving alternative to prison. But there was a problem. Money. Despite the good things about Mount Megs, even at the start, it was struggling financially. Cornelia had a lot of money for a Black woman at the time. But again, it's all relative. She didn't have money to keep an entire school afloat. And while the club spent a lot of time raising funds, it was simply not enough to keep the school going. But Cornelia was determined to keep Mount Megs open. So just three years after the doors opened, Cornelia began lobbying the state to take over Mount Megs. I besieged
4: every member of the
2: legislature.
4: It was funny. I would send in from the lobby for a member. Of course, he would not know but what it was a white woman asking for him, and he would come out. Then he would ask what I wanted, and I would say... We have a bill prepared to make an appropriation for a reformatory for Negro children, and I want you to vote for it. And I wouldn't let him go until I had his promise to vote for it if it came up.
2: This was where Cornelia's connections came in handy, especially her connections to white people. She lobbied judges, legislators, and other prominent white men in the community to support the state's takeover, and not just privately, but publicly. And many of them did it. One headline read, Juvenile Reformatory at Mount Megs is endorsed by many prominent white men. In fact, the fact that Cornelia had connections with powerful white people was the only reason she was able to build Mount Megs at all. In Alabama, even the most successful black people needed white approval to do almost anything.
6: Even with the money raised within the Black community, they still needed the support and approval of the institutions beyond the Black community. In
2: 1911, the state of Alabama officially took over Mount Megs. This may have been the biggest mistake of Cornelia Bowen's life. The institution was able to stay alive, but at an unimaginable cost. And Mount Megs was irreparably changed. There's this quote from one of those white men who supported the state takeover, a quote that I think about a lot now. It foreshadowed the future of the institution. It says, I have always felt that when you put a young boy in jail or in the penitentiary for any length of time, you went a long way toward killing a human soul
5: me Jesus. Is my only
2: Cornelia, it seems, had only good intentions. The school needed funding that she and her club and her community couldn't sustainably provide. But almost immediately after the state took over, there were early signs that the way that they thought about the black kids in their care was drastically different than Cornelia's outlook. The first change, renaming the school. The Alabama Industrial School for Negro Boys would now be called the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers. Cornelia remained intimately involved with Mount Megs for years as a trustee, until she died in 1934. But the real power always remained with the white male board members, men with connections, wealth, and land. Men who saw Mount Megs as a way to generate money, not rehabilitate children. And this is an important thing to note about Mount Megs. Sure, the state agreed to take it over. But that didn't mean they were going to fund it. Not sufficiently, anyway. Not like they funded the white schools. We mentioned this last episode. When the white schools needed something, they'd ask the state for money. But when Mount Megs needed something... School books, medicine, teachers, working toilets, clean water. The state mostly expected them to pick enough cotton to get it themselves. I wondered if Cornelia knew what she was doing handing the school over to the state of Alabama. If she expected Mount Megs' fall to be so swift.
6: So to expect that as Ms. Bowen and other individuals begin to retire out and transition out, you now have the state system responsible for the well-being of these children. And to expect that they would do so respectfully
2: and in love... In Jim Crow, Alabama...
6: is kind of insane, given the context of, of where we're located.
2: And how might the women who made Mount Megs possible have felt about what this school became?
6: They created... The Mount Megs are formatory for colored boys because they didn't trust anybody else to do it. And I would think that they would not be surprised. I think they would be upset that we allowed it to happen. I think they would be upset that we allowed it to happen.
2: When I was reading or talking to people about their personal experiences at Mount Megs, I had to keep reminding myself that it was a school. Because by the time Lonnie, Mary, Jenny, and Johnny were all incarcerated there in the 1960s, Mount Megs had become something very different, what more than one person called a slave camp. But it hadn't always been like that, not that bad. Even after the school was handed over to the state, it maintained some level of humanity, at least at the beginning. So let's go back to 1918 when at the age of 12, Satchel Page was arrested and sentenced to six years at Mount Megs. The Charge Boys, who at the time were exemplary fellow students, were trusted to transport him 15 miles in a wagon to Mount Megs. Here's author Donald Spivey again.
3: He sees the place. It, it is clear that this is not what he thought. Uh, it would be. He was looking for some place probably with bars and and all of that sort of thing, right? And there were no bars,
2: no bars, no cells. Instead, Satchel found a meal, clothes, and a pair of shoes waiting for him. Hand-me-downs that to him looked brand new. The boys had to adhere to a strict routine: sunrise, wake up, morning prayer, breakfast, and then chores like feeding the livestock, or mending the buildings, or cleaning the schoolroom, or harvesting the crops. The rest of the time, the boys were expected to be in the schoolroom, learning arithmetic reading and writing. A classic Booker T industrial education.
3: This model actually worked in the case of a satchel page.
2: Perhaps that's because during Satchel's time there, Cornelia Bowen's influence still permeated the school. She didn't run the school anymore, but she remained on the board and was still closely involved. And Satchel became one of Cornelia's favorite students. Good Behavior earned Satchel the privilege of joining the Mount Megs baseball team, a group of boys with a special place in Cornelia's heart.
3: She's the one who believes that baseball, sports, can be a reclamation project. So this is a reward for for the boys, but it's also a teaching tool. To get them to understand sportsmanship, to, uh, to understand working uh, together, and, and it's a process that, that she uses quite
2: effectively. Satchel Page, the legendary pitcher, learned how to play baseball at Mount Meg's. Roll
1: it, roll it, roll
2: it. I got Playing baseball opened Satchel's world. The team traveled to play games sometimes, and there were big picnics where Mount Meg's students and the surrounding community would come out to cheer them on. And when Satchel left Mount Megs five years later, the story is that he had been transformed for the better.
3: And he came out with a nice pair of shoes and clothes. And I forget how much they gave you back then, a couple dollars. And he knew how to pitch. He said, "If trading five years of my life to learn how to pitch like this, it was well worth it.
2: The year Satchel arrives, Mount Megs seems to be a success story. The Reformatory is doing splendid work, said one 1918 article. Substantial improvement has been made, said another. Cornelia and the club are thinking of starting a school just like it for girls. But in the end, there were so few satchel pages. It seems way likelier that most of the kids were Lonnie's and Jenny's and Johnny's and Mary's. By 1920, everything at Mount Meg's was being rationed from the tools to the food. And even with money from the state, the Federation of Women still had to fundraise to cover infrastructure and faculty salaries. Farming, which was once just part of the industrial education model, quickly became the school's primary source of income. That made the boys' labor essential to keeping the school in operation. In 1920, the governor of Alabama wrote to the school, informing them that he was prepared to parole some of the boys the school's assistant superintendent, J.R. Wingfield, responded, discouraging the governor from releasing five of the boys because he needed them to operate the machinery. He wrote, I would like for the governor to withhold his actions until we can train a boy to take each of these places. I hope that you will understand my position clearly. I do not object to paroling the boys. They might wait just a little while till we can get their places filled rather than disarrange and inconvenience everything. This was what Mount Megs became, a labor camp for Black children, and yet another way for Black work to generate white money. The state told students they were there for their own improvement, but it was glaringly clear that they were there for the benefit of Alabama. With the state's dependence on the unpaid labor of its Black child prisoners, Mount Megs' mission shifted from rehabilitating its wards to exploiting them. But the violence at Mount Meg's was often met with resistance. Starting even in Satchel Paige's day, notices started appearing in the local newspapers, ratcheting up through the 50s and 60s. They said things like, six armed Negroes escaped Mount Meg's industrial school, or police seeking escape artists in burglary. Running away was a regular part of the Mount Meg's experience. On the next episode of Unreformed, we hear about these escapes. And we look at one in particular and its harrowing consequences. Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, is a production of School of Humans and iHeartMedia. This episode was written by me, Josie Duffy Rice, and Taylor Von Lasley. Our script supervisor is Florence Burrow-Adams, and our producer is Gabby Watts. We had additional writing and production support from Sherry Scott. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Elsie Crowley, Brandon Barr, Matt Arnett, and me. Sound design and mix is by Jesse Neiswanger. Music is by Ben Soli. Additional recordings are courtesy of the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. The song featured in this episode is Jesus is My Only Friend by Mary Lee Bindolf. Cornelia Bowen was voiced by Alvia Wardlaw. Special thanks to the Alabama Department of Archives and History, Michael Harriet, Floyd Hall, Kevin Nutt, Van Newkirk, and all of the survivors of Mount Megs willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know attended Mount Megs and would like to be in contact, please email Mount Podcast at gmail.com. That's M T M E I G S Podcast at gmail.com.
6: School of Humans.